Hey, it's Luke. Today we're talking about the expected overturn of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, two landmark Supreme Court decisions that codified the federal right to an abortion. We've lived through a month and a few days of wall-to-wall coverage nationally and locally that has been beyond exhaustive. Parts of it were exhausting, like the over <laughs> the overfocus, the overemphasis on the leak and the breach of norms. And a lot of the news was heartbreaking, hearing people's fears for the future and really underscoring how tenuous this particular freedom is. And in the aftermath, we're going to talk about this in a second, how tenuous many of our other freedoms that we take for granted may be. And now we're in the middle of almost complete silence on the issue. The news cycle has moved on to the January 6th hearings in D.C., the arrest of 31 white nationalists from all over the country in Coeur d'Alene over the weekend. Range had its own story on the connections between the two men arrested and Matt Shea and his church on fire ministries. We were the first media outlet to make that connection, shameless plug, though it was a combined effort of a few journalists and local advocates to pull it all together. Back to Roe, though, the question we've been asking ourselves here at Range, because of how exhaustive the coverage has been, is what can we add to the conversation that's constructive? There are plenty of things we've chosen not to weigh in on. Part of that's capacity. Part of it's having the right person for a particular topic. Part of it is, to be honest, a deep and existential exhaustion with certain topics. This could have been one of them, not the exhaustion part. There was so much coverage about this. A lot of it wasn't useful. It wasn't helpful. It just allowed us to sort of sit in misery with no new information. Lots of speculation, no new information. So did we want to contribute to that? We kept mulling it over and eventually figured it out with a little help from a friend of the pod, Samantha Wolfile. We're going to chat with Sam in a moment about her in-depth cover story in the Inlander a couple weeks ago about the expected local impacts on reproductive health access, assuming the final opinion is like the draft opinion and Roe is repealed. Before that, though, I wanted to spend a couple minutes thinking through the Supreme Court itself, its place in the American mythos, and why the decision feels like such a break from history, and maybe what that means tactically for folks who don't want to see further rights eroded and maybe want more greater rights over time. This is something I began thinking about last July, well before the road draft was leaked. It started after the Supreme Court gutted key parts of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Clearly, part of the reason the leak of this draft decision caused such an uproar was just the decision itself, just the erosion of rights in itself. Part of it, though, I think is what I feel is a misperception about what the Supreme Court is, and maybe what our American institutions are. And I think part of that misperception is in the idea of America itself. Part of that misperception is just that most of us have all lived with a Supreme Court, and most of our parents have lived with a Supreme Court that generally expanded rights over time. The Supreme Court doesn't overrule itself often, and when it does, it's usually in favor of expanding rights, not restricting them. Brown versus Board of Education was an overruling of a previous decision in favor of saying, no, the doctrine of separate but equal is not actually equality. So if we're going to go for equality, we can't do separate but equal. I'm going to try to stay away from partisan valences like conservative, liberal, and progressive here because I don't think that's exactly the way to understand why the voting rights decision hit so hard and why the row leak hit like an atom bomb. Whether we like the rights being upheld or not in most of our lifetimes, and again, most of our parents' lifetimes, whether the decision was considered quote-unquote progressive or quote-unquote conservative in the American political valence, right? Our progressive is different than Europe's progressive. The court tends to rule in a way that expands somebody's rights. 
for the left, that's reproductive health, that's voting rights for non-white people. For conservatives, it's the hard line the court seems to always take on gun rights, right? That is an expansion of rights, whether we like it or not. That is the court saying the government has no role in deciding whether you have access to contraception or access to firearms. The court generally expands somebody's rights. I'm not going to go into many more examples than that. It's just to illustrate it. And I also want to caveat that illustration that I am not a judicial scholar, but I do pay close enough attention to this stuff to be at the top end of like normal person. So I'm not trying to create an encyclopedic theory of 50 years of Supreme Court jurisprudence or anything, or 60 years or 70 years, thinking all the way back to Brown versus Board in their totality. It's more about the court in its mass cultural perception. And again, as I understand it, when the court breaks through to the wider consciousness, what do those big decisions mean and how do we talk about them? I also want to try to get to the court's place within the collective American mythos and the differences between the way conservatives think of the court and liberals do. I cannot count the number of times I've heard someone say, America's not perfect, but it's the best system there has ever been. And it's not just conservatives who say that. It's fundamental to the liberal self-conception as well. And actually in the Trump era, I probably hear it from national Democrats as much, if not more than national Republicans. So not only is it the best system that's ever been, the American idea, its own self-conception of freedom is morally good and just almost objectively even if it has taken us hundreds of years to extend the concept of freedom to all Americans, the idea in its pure form. And when we think about this conception, we're, what we're really doing, and when you think about purity of form, you're thinking about apolitically and even outside of culture. There's like the idea divorced from human concerns like culture and politics, the idea itself is morally good and morally just. We had the right idea, guys. We had it. We just didn't include enough people in the umbrella of people. <laughs> we said all pe men are created equal, and it just took us a while to include women and non-whites in that, right? Like, that's the idea. Think about that Martin Luther King Jr. quote, we shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Not only is it a perfect encapsulation of this American mythos, it's a framing that, again, not a scholar here, but seems unique to America. Like, it doesn't seem like a coincidence that among the great civil disobedient leaders in the 20th century, it was Martin Luther King Jr. who came up with that and not like Gandhi. Which isn't to say that the United States is actually a more moral and just place than colonial India was or anywhere else, but that was the mythos the first principle we are all raised with. So it makes total sense to me that one of the great orators and rhetoricians in modern history, speaking within the context of America, would frame the fight for civil rights in America as a fight that brings our legal framework into line with our concepts of moral and spiritual justness. That cultural framework was the basis for the abolition movement, for women's suffrage, obviously for the mid-century fight for civil rights that MLK was a part of. Many of these expansions of rights were legislated. Some of them, like Brown versus Board of Education, were decided in a court of law. All of them came after years of fierce, fierce grassroots struggle. When King was talking about the arc of the moral universe then, he wasn't arguing for inevitability. He was not saying, if we just hang out, <laughs> the, mar the moral universe will bend toward justice. He was arguing that in this fight that seemed overwhelming, 
Those fighting for civil rights had the idea of America itself in their corner, and they used that as a rhetorical strategy. They said, it's all of us, and it's God, it's morality, it's justice. The way I most often hear that quote said in a contemporary context, and I'm talking like most of my adult life here, is not in the context of active fights. It feels like it often is a rallying cry or almost like a way of self-soothing setbacks. Maybe not complacency, but sometimes a kind of passivity, like it'll work itself out. Regardless of short-term trends and upheavals, the American project will eventually work itself out, and eventually America itself as an abstraction, the idea will make us all free. The people closest to oppression have never bought into this, obviously, which is why we still have people fighting tooth and nail for their communities every day, despite everything. The further you get from that oppression, though, the more comfortable you get, inevitably. I count myself among this. I'm pretty far from oppression. It feels as though, at least to me, the closer you are to power, the more America works for you, the more likely that moral inevitability thinking kicks in. Take a second to look up Dianne Feinstein's comments on gun control in the wake of the Uvalde massacre if you want a prime example of what I'm talking about here. This is a person obviously at the end of her political career and, and close to the end of her life because she's extremely elderly, but there's a complacency in the way she speaks about gun control that is in marked, marked contrast to the urgency of say, the parents who have just lived through it, or the Sandy Hook parents, the urgency they still feel. The Supreme Court has had a unique role to play in that narrative, I think, especially for liberals. And abortion rights are perhaps the darkest example of this, although they're far from the only example. There's a sense that not only does the Supreme Court transcend politics, but these nine unelected people from elite institutions with lifetime appointments are the guardians of this ever more inclusive American idea and the protectors of the oppressed. Like we're talking about people who, with the, like Amy Coney Barrett is the first Supreme Court justice maybe ever that hasn't gone to Harvard or Yale and she went to Notre Dame, for God's sake, an elite institution of its own right, just not in the Ivy League. I say this with love because I have friends who think in this way. It, it's cult-like almost, but it also feels like a response to a recent history of very little electoral progress on any of this stuff, legislative progress on any of this stuff. We have been unable or we have not been willing to codify Roe federally, and so we have relied on the Supreme Court to keep it alive. We were not able to codify a right to gay marriage. We had to rely on the Supreme Court. People mock Trump's followers for putting all of their faith in him, and I get that. I get why. But how many of those folks doing the mocking also have a notorious RBG shirt in their closet? How many of them had a weird quasi-sexualized fascination with Robert Mueller, right? How many of you had a sticker on your car that said it's Mueller time? Where did that get us? This idea that even if our politicians are useless, at least our institutions will save us. It's a notion that has never made sense to me. It is not healthy, in my opinion, for anyone living in a democracy. And I honestly hope if there's any silver lining to be found with this Roe decision, the death of the idea that our institutions will save us will be the thing that might actually save us. If the idea ever lived at all on the right, it died decades ago in similar circumstances, probably somewhere between Brown versus Board of Education and Roe. Think about that. Back then, they were probably having the same discussion from a conservative perspective. 
our institutions are not preserving, conserving our way of life. They're changing it. They're saying we can't segregate our schools anymore. They're saying we have to let people make their own individual choice about their reproductive health. And so they organized, they organized politically and structurally and changed the judiciary over time. And now one of those decisions is all but overturned. These are conversations I've had with a dear, dear friend who has been on our pod before. There's an idea that the Supreme Court is above politics or used to be above politics or was conceived in its initial formation as an attempt to be above politics. And I guess I can't speak to the intent of the original thing, but the Supreme Court has never been above politics. It is in some ways the essence of politics. It is a way that power coded the entrenchment of power into the founding documents of our nation and coded in such a way that inherently disadvantages progressive growth. Let me explain how. Think about this. Structurally, the Supreme Court is chosen by the Senate, which is by definition our most conservative and undemocratic chamber of Congress. California has like as many people as the bottom 20 states combined. Those bottom 20 states are represented by 40 senators. California is represented by two senators. That is inherently undemocratic. That is not one man, one vote. That's one state, two votes, regardless of how many people live in that state. That's not the same thing. If the Supreme Court was chosen by the House, things might be different in their particulars, but it would still be a political entity chosen by a different political entity abstracted away from the democratic process. We still wouldn't be voting on Supreme Court justices. So as we face the near certainty of Roe falling and the real possibility that Alito's decision will be written in such a way that this could easily be the first domino that knocks down a host of other freedoms justified under a legal conception of the individual right to privacy. Let me just list them in order here real quick. 2015, Obergefell v. Hodges established the rights to same-sex marriage. 12 years earlier, though, Lawrence v. Texas struck down anti-sodomy laws that were still on the books. We were still prosecuting and incarcerating people for the sex they have less than 20 years ago. 1992, Planned Parenthood v. Casey strengthened Roe and created the undue burden doctrine that Sandra Day O'Connor championed. 1977, contraception for anyone under 16 years of age. Sorry, over 16 years of age. That was not a right until just before I was born. 1973 was Roe. 1972, they took the contraception rights and extended it to married couples. And it was all the way back in 1965, Griswold v. Connecticut was sort of the first case that really cemented the right to privacy as a constitutional doctrine. Not explicit, and this is the key, not explicitly spelled out as an amendment in the Constitution the way the First Amendment and the Second Amendment are, but inferred from the language of all the other stuff. The right to privacy itself is inferred from decades of court decisions building on principles that those justices found within the Constitution itself, but not explicitly spelled out. The right to privacy is precisely what Alito and his concurring justices are targeting. So as the draft opinion stands, the court isn't just knocking down Roe. They're giving themselves the opportunity to dial reproductive and sexual freedom back 60 years. So again, please, can we just kill the idea that there are non-political institutions? And if we start there, we can't end there because then everything becomes a political fight, right? And that's actually already the field that conservatives are playing on. They already feel like everything is political. This decision didn't just happen. Conservatives dug in and started a political trench war 50 years ago to get to this point. It took patience and discipline. It took surviving a lot of losses. I just read a list 
of things, those were all losses to that movement. So ultimately the question that I'm left with and that I haven't heard a lot of people talking about, to be honest, and so that's why I wanted to voice it here, is this. Is the broad left ready to craft their own 50-year strategy? You'll hear me ask that question of Sam in the interview, and you'll hear her say that the activists she spoke with are focused on short-term harm reduction. That is entirely appropriate, obviously appropriate, but it's not sufficient to preserving the rights we still have and clawing back the rights we're in danger of losing. This is true well beyond reproductive health. Think about all the rights we should have but don't yet. The right to not live in fear of getting killed by the state. The right to receive a livable wage for a normal day's work. The right to survive an illness without going bankrupt. The right to retire and survive. Just be able to live a happy life after you stop working after a lifetime of contributing to society. My personal vision of freedom includes rights I have almost no hope of seeing in my lifetime. And that's why for me, the key part of that MLK quote isn't that the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. It's that the moral arc of the universe is long. It's long. That is the key piece to me. And that's what makes the conservative game plan all the more relevant. And the more progressive you are, the more rights you want us to eventually see that we don't already have and that in many cases seem unimaginable right now the more relevant the conservative strategy becomes to a progressive strategy. 50 years ago, a bunch of conservatives committed to a movement they knew their grandkids would need to be the ones to finish. Maybe great-grandkids. Is the broad left ready to make that commitment? All right, that's enough for me. We're going to get to Samantha Wolfile in a minute, but two quick things first. First, <laughs> most important, Roe isn't dead yet. As of the middle of June 2022, Roe v. Wade is still in effect, and access to safe and legal abortion is a federal right. Sam took pains to put that in her story that hopefully you have read. We're going to say it here too, because that's another thing that advocates, reproductive health advocates keep saying is people think Roe's already dead because the draft decision leaked and it hit like an atom bomb on our culture. All of that is true. But as of now, Roe is still the law of the land. We just need to keep underscoring that. Secondly, if you like the work we're doing at Range, if you like original reporting about everything from the environment to the far right, if you like hearing me get beat red reading these monologues, if you like the conversations we have on this podcast with the journalists, advocates, and thinkers who help us understand the local impacts of national events and movements, consider supporting us by becoming a paying member of Range. Go to rangemedia.co and click subscribe. It's 10 bucks a month or 100 bucks a year. Again, we're working to make this a sustainable member-driven organization so that the only people we're beholden to are you, the readers and listeners. All right, without further ado, Samantha Wolfile on the local impacts of the end of Roe and the efforts being taken to reduce the harm of those impacts. Oh, and <laughs> we also talk about the most bitterly ironic story that sort of flew under the radar a little bit after the interpersonal war at the Spokane Regional Health District between Administrator Amelia Clark and Health Officer Bob Lutz, which resulted in Lutz being fired in the middle of the pandemic, probably illegally. Amelia Clark announced she's leaving the health district in September for another job. Just bitterly ironic. So Sam's been tracking every bend in that long and winding road, and we just had to get her thoughts on that too. So Samantha Wolfile on row on the Regional Health District, all of that and more coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. 
Uh, Samantha, thank you for coming on the podcast today. You just wrote a story on abortion rights in Washington and Idaho if Roe v. Wade is overturned. And kind of where I wanted to start today was the start of the article. It opened at the Bands Off Our Bodies rally in Spokane on May 14th. It was the first one the day after the the draft leaked um, on the 3rd, I think, was when that first rally happened. Okay. So... Can you tell us about that day and about the emotion and everything that was going on that day? Yeah, I mean, people had just learned about this apparent decision that the Supreme Court is going to overturn Roe, and they were very passionate, and I think a lot of people were upset and kind of wanted a place to to speak their concerns, and so they really quickly that next day threw together this rally. I mean, we got very short notice, if any, like saw it on Facebook and popped down there ourselves, but they went in front of the courthouse because this is a federal decision, and there was a group, I'd say maybe 100, maybe a little bit more than that, were able to show up even on that really short, maybe couple hours notice and already had signs and as you sort of see in the story this one woman was dressed as a handmaid and sort of had everything in mind and i think people may have already had some of this on hand from the women's marches in the past couple of years but yeah definitely there was a lot of concern and a lot of different groups involved in pulling that together so quickly because this affects a lot of people it seemed like despite the short notice it felt like at least 100 people to me but then like folks like apic and pika who we actually just had on the pod like actually canceled events they had that day in order to join and encourage people to sort of show solidarity, which it was kind of a unique thing in at least the protests that I've been aware of in town. It seemed like there was this really quick move across the board to show sort of coalitional solidarity. Sure. I think a lot of people, too, were already making the connections that I'm sure we can talk about later. But um, there's definitely concerns that if this decision goes through the way that was listed out in this draft by Samuel Alito, other rights could potentially be endangered as well. And so I think there was a lot of concern from people who fight for LGBT rights and just other marginalized communities in general. So do you feel like that solidarity, again, like I just want to underscore how rare it is for organizations to like cancel their own events in order to sort of show up or something like this. Did that feel to you or did you hear anything from the folks you interviewed that it was like the gravity of the situation? Was it sort of a shift in, you know, progressive activism where they've been trying to coalition build but since maybe Trump or since Floyd or the pandemic? Or was it just really the gravity of the situation or was it some mix? You know, I don't know. I didn't talk very much about, you know, the exact mix of organizations that day. I do think there was that sense of gravity, as you called it, that people, um, you know, had lots of other things planned that day, including the just, you know, everyday protesters who showed up and they felt it was important to be there and cancel whatever else they had going on because this is such a groundbreaking potential decision. There were lots of people who said like, oh, I got to run and pick my kids up from their softball game that I was supposed to be at or um, (laughs) make it back and make dinner for my family that I was supposed to be doing right now. So that was the first immediate protest. There was another one. There was another one on May 14th. I was not able to attend that one. But uh, yeah, so the opening scene in the story is from that day after this draft leaked. I guess let's dig into the actual case. Can you tell us about the Supreme Court case that's actually being considered uh, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health? Thank you for the name because I was (laughs) just going to scramble through and read that again. But yeah, so this case, basically they're being asked to decide whether a ban at 15 weeks on abortion would be legal or should be not allowed. And the way that uh, Justice Samuel Alito's draft is written, he kind of leans on the language that was used by the group suing in this case, which uh, they were saying, you know, if you allow this 15-week ban, you basically have to totally overturn Roe. 
So he kind of said, oh, okay, crap. well, I guess we're overturning <laughs> Roe. Um, it's basically how this whole entire um, argument is laid out. I mean, he says that a couple times in there, like, well, based on their language, I guess we have to overturn Roe then. So uh, because Roe, Roe v. Wade and then another case in the 90s, um, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, both sort of held that viability is the stage that states can start putting limitations on abortion. And viability has changed over the years, obviously, with advances in medicine, but it's still somewhere around like 23 weeks. So 15 weeks would obviously be far, far earlier than a fetus could survive outside the womb with any technology that we have right now. My understanding, and it's it's a like very much a superficial layperson's understanding, is that Roe and to some extent Casey hinges on a right to privacy argument. So how does Alito and the, the assenting judges in the draft opinion, how do they sort of get around the right to privacy thing? Or do they just deny that it's a right to privacy at all? Yeah, well, it it's an interesting thing because our constitution doesn't explicitly state that you have a right to privacy. So the issue that many people for years have had with Roe v. Wade is that it's sort of laid out a couple of pathways through the constitution and its amendments that you could agree that there's a right to privacy. One of those is through the Ninth Amendment, which doesn't get talked about very much, but that amendment basically says like, hey guys, anything we didn't explicitly list in here, it doesn't mean that we're taking that right away from people. That's still, those rights are left to the people. And the 14th Amendment is the one that uh, this draft focuses on a lot. And that one basically, there's a line, it's really long actually, there's like many sections to that one, but the section that matters for this is that it, it basically says states can't enforce laws that deprive people of life, liberty, or property, and then there's also equal protection of the laws. And so somewhere within there, people have argued, and successfully with Roe v. Wade, argued that privacy is a right that would be included in that. Uh, so this 98 pages is basically spent saying it's not explicitly laid out in the Constitution. And if it's not explicitly laid out, we need to look back to see if it was deeply rooted in our nation's history as like a value or a tradition. And he goes into his version, like his detail of why the abortion was not something that was a deeply rooted tradition. Is that a new standard? Is that an emerging standard? Or do you, you might not know because, you know, this is, yeah. you, you wrote a story sort of about the <laughs> I, I'm not a impact. lawyer, so I'm not sure. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> but it's sure like, I, like I totally... had never, I've heard a lot of different conservative um, arguments around constitutional stuff. I have never, until this decision or draft decision, heard about the sort of like deeply rooted in our history test. <laughs> so yeah, did, yeah. did you get a sense of like if that's new or not? Yeah, I mean, I definitely asked about this because I had the same reaction as you did. I mean, as a woman, as someone who has friends who are people of color, I'm like, if that's our standard, I don't have rights of any kind, basically, and neither do my friends of color or people who are LGBTQ. Like, there's not a deeply rooted history of those people having rights. Right. Even white men who don't own property, you know, right. like, that was the original. Yeah. I mean, I was curious about that. I, I do think that it, it seems to be re somewhat new or at least new and being applied in this really powerful case. And I think that's what's driving a lot of the concern right now. I mean, he, t he did take the time in this draft to write out like, we want to be clear, this only affects the right to abortion. It does not affect other things like Obergefell, which was the case that ended up giving the right to same-sex marriage. But if you use that language that, okay, if it's not explicitly in the Constitution, it has to be deeply rooted in our nation's history, then yes, many other things could be at risk if this then becomes precedent that a court would rely on. That was actually one of my later questions of like, 
you know, and, and anti-abortion people kind of keep pointing to it like, oh, don't worry about your other rights. You know, it's fine. You know, this opinion shouldn't be used to overturn other rights. And my question was like, are we really believing that? Like, yeah, I mean, I think that's the question, isn't it? Like, this is pretty big precedent to overturn, which is the other thing. You know, I asked an attorney locally about, you know, how big of a deal is this to overturn 50 years of precedent that's sort of been upheld? And there are other cases that have done that, but typically they've been, I guess, more progressive leaning in the decision making. So obviously Brown v. Board of Education was a big Mm -hmm. one uh, where, you know, decided that segregation was not good. Um, That's a good standard, I think most people would say, of overturning precedent. You know, getting aside from like the progressive, which has maybe like certainly political, but to some folks like a partisan valence, it's really historically tended to be in when things get overturned, it's in favor of an expansion of rights, not a retraction of rights. Do you feel like that's, that's relatively That's a much fair? better way to say what I just was trying to say. Thank you. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Along that line of thinking, so what are activists and organizers, like, what are they really worried about with other decisions being overturned? You know, like LGBTQ rights, even rights to birth control, a lot of people are worried about. Um, so if I remember right, I think the case was Griswold, which I think came before Roe, if I'm remembering. Again, I'm not a lawyer, so <laughs> this is all just in my head. But I Griswold think that v. was Connecticut. Yes. And that was one of the first cases with this sort of right to privacy being enshrined. And that allows access to contraception. Additionally, this 2015 ruling in Obergefell uh, was really big and similarly relied on a constitutional right to privacy. So any ruling that's sort of has that reliance could potentially be at risk, whether it's explicitly stated in this ultimate opinion or not. I think the logic of those rulings can be used later on and potentially change outcomes in cases. What will happen in the event of Roe being overturned in like what what would the like practical impact on us locally in Washington and North Idaho be? Yeah, I mean in Washington You know, the right to abortion was actually already passed by state voters in, I believe, 1970. So access will not change here in the sense that it will remain legal and it has been legal. But access could still change a little bit in that Idaho will almost immediately ban abortion because they have a trigger ban in place. So there's a couple things because one, here in Spokane area, I mean, we already get most North Idaho patients that need that service. There are not abortion providers for the most part in that part of the state of Idaho. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, because I I saw a map that there was like a map floating around of like all the clinics that are going to close down across the country because of trigger laws. And I noticed that only clinics that existed in Idaho were in Southern Idaho. So I was going to ask about that. Yeah. So for many years, we've already had this, right? We've already seen the patients coming from Idaho and even parts of Montana and sometimes much further away than that, depending on their life situation. But I think the last numbers that I saw from local Planned Parenthood, it was 43% of the patients at the Spokane Valley and the Pullman clinics were coming from Idaho. And I did get updated numbers from Paul recently. I think it was closer to 50 something in the year to date. So that's, that's pretty significant. And a lot of those patients from Idaho will end up coming to Oregon or Washington to access abortion if this is fully overturned. Didn't Planned Parenthood just, I know they have their clinic in Pullman. Did they recently open one in Clarkston? Well, and I was just wondering, is that was that part of a strategy, like doing it along the border like that? It seems like it must be in response to the cases they're getting from North Idaho. That could be. And I know that there was some discussion as well with the affiliate based in Oregon. I was actually on another 
radio show and the decision came out that day that I was going on the show. And so the person before me was their affiliate president and they were asking her about the, they have space, I believe, to build a new clinic in Eastern Oregon, very close to the border as well. And so there was sort of that question of, you know, is this in response to the fetal heartbeat bans and potentially the overturning of Roe? And it seemed like at at the very least, they, they recognize that this access is needed. And the longer the distance, the harder it is for people to get there. Right, for sure. So the law in Idaho, you know, has exceptions for when the abortion saves life of a mother and for cases of rape and incest that have been reported to law enforcement. I've read a lot of cases in Texas, you know, where there's already a pretty deep abortion ban, practically. And there's instances where people are, it's going to save the life of a mother, but then the provider is still hesitant to do it because they're worried that they're going to get in trouble. Have you heard of any, like, cases like that in Idaho? or? I don't know if like any specific examples or anything at the at the moment because this isn't in place yet right um i think the six week ban well i shouldn't say six week the fetal heartbeat ban which is roughly around six weeks being pregnant isn't in effect yet it's it's on hold while the idaho supreme court is looking at a lawsuit over that so i don't know that that would have happened yet with any of the providers in southern idaho but I, I know that people who work in those circles are concerned. And, you know, once if Roe v. Wade is overturned with whatever decision comes out in a couple of weeks, this trigger ban will take effect in Idaho, which, like you said, it, the only exceptions at that point are to prevent the death of the mother, basically, unless it's because she's suicidal, which is an interesting exception. They, like you can't specifically say that mind. that would be the saving of the life or I believe there's like language about like creating substantial and irreversible impairment so like if there's some really bad physical effect that's going to happen to you you could also be eligible to get an abortion and then yeah in cases of rape or incest that specifically have been reported to law enforcement and a copy of the report to law enforcement has been provided to the physician so we definitely trust law enforcement anytime that happens well, and just think about getting, <laughs> how long does it take to get a report, yeah. a copy of a report? Mm-hmm. When you file a case like that, that's really complicated. It could take weeks or months to even start that process. Well, and like the backlog and rape kits that's so common and testing labs and stuff like that. Well, and I will say rereading those laws just before coming here, it it kind of stood out to me. I hadn't noticed this the first time on reading it, but for cases that involve minors, that have been raped or incest is involved, the guardian needs to have reported it to law enforcement, which it seems like there could be conflicts of interest in the case of incest. Definitionally so, yeah. Insofar as there aren't any clinics offering abortion services in North Idaho, we might be kind of talking about Southern Idaho, and certainly we're talking about other places across the country. Plenty of clinics that offer abortions offer full-spectrum reproductive health services. Some of them offer full-spectrum health services. Do you have a sense even if it wasn't part of your direct reporting, but just in the stuff you read as background, are those clinics going to close completely or just stop offering abortion services? One of the things that I'm curious about is whether other reproductive health things like contraception are going to become, whether, you know, regardless if this leads to further Supreme Court activity, clamping down on things like contraception potentially, 
is it just going to, is the effect going to be that the fewer of these sorts of clinics there are, the harder it's going to be to get reproductive health care of any sort, even outside of abortion? Yeah, that, that may be the case, certainly in smaller communities where um, there just may be fewer doctors around and fewer people willing to prescribe those medications. Thankfully, there's the internet and it is actually a lot easier anymore to get a prescription for something like the pill. That's only one form of birth control, obviously. But yeah, I mean, like you said, these clinics, like especially Planned Parenthood clinics often offer a ton of different services. Abortion is, you know, just a fraction of what they do. In the case of clinics that are on bordering places where it is more clamped down, it does tend to be a higher percentage of what they do on a day-to-day basis than in clinics where that's not such a big deal. I I used to be in Bellingham and I think, I hope I'm not misremembering this, but I I remember it being something really, really low, like 3% of what they offered at the clinic in Bellingham was abortion. And the rest of it was services for STDs and, you know, just general reproductive health care and I think they also offered trans services as far as hormone treatments and things like that. One of the Inlander readers in the like response to your story, that link or whatever, Clyde Harrington, can Washington sue Idaho for making us take care of its residents? Because you know, you read about the governor wanting to give more funding to um, health care and things like that in response to this. So have you heard of anything like that? No, I haven't. I mean, that would be a really interesting thing to bring a lawsuit over. I mean, if you think of even this pandemic we've been going through for the last couple of years, I mean, there's a lot of places that don't have as much medical access and those patients may need to go across state lines. I think it would be an interesting case, I guess, to see uh, like a state AG take on. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't actually thought about that question. Especially especially <laughs> when it comes to Medicaid, right? Because Medicaid is partially federally funded, but it's also the gap is made up by state. So it would be a situation where tax dollars are potentially paying for somebody from Idaho who's on Medicaid or just doesn't have insurance. Well, and remember that abortion is not funded through federal health care. Oh, that's a good point. So you're even more on point that the state gap would be funding that. Wow, right. Yeah. We are all expecting the final draft of this thing, you know, sometime in June or maybe July. And and Roe is still Roe and Casey. It's it's fascinating. We've spent our entire lives saying Roe, and in some ways, Casey is, was the decision that really solidified a lot of the shakier parts of Roe. So Roe and Casey are still law, and access to safe and legal abortion still a federal right. And you you like took pains to like say that in your story. And, and are people already feeling like it's already over and they're, you know, expecting to have to travel these distances? You, you take like an average person, right? And you see these headlines like Roe v. Wade is getting overturned. A lot of people don't click through and read the story or understand very complicated <laughs> Supreme Court legal context, right? So there are already people, I mean, the, the reason that I took pains to put that in there, like this, until this decision comes out is still the law of the land. Almost every source that I talked to on the, the pro-abortion access side of things, I guess, was very clear to say that. Um, the, the woman who I talked to, who's the manager at the Pullman Clinic, said that they do already have people coming in worried and thinking that they can't access it at all in Idaho. Some of that already started when the six-week or the fetal heartbeat ban was passed, I think, in March. You know, anytime that it's in the news, apparently, this kind of becomes a question where the patients come in and sort of don't understand what rights they still have, um, what they don't have anymore. And you get more questions about things like IUDs as well. Yeah, I see uh, lots of people saying, well, I'm getting an IUD now just in case. So I can have that for 10 right. years they or five want that, years. Or... Like long-term protection of mm-hmm. five to 10 years. 
other than like uh, people asking for like long-term birth control in case the pill is in danger, what's the other effects that abortion clinics and reproductive health clinics are seeing on the ground? Like more people coming in now, even though it's not overturned yet? Uh, It didn't sound like too many more people were coming in than they've already been seeing, but just the sort of shift in who is coming in from where a little bit. Uh, I mean, we did talk a little bit about, I think after the fetal heartbeat ban was passed in Idaho, some patients from Idaho started going a little bit more frequently to the Spokane and Yakima clinics, uh, which offer abortion that's like surgical and later on in term, because the Pullman clinic only offers medication abortion. Uh, They ended up seeing some patients who were maybe for like they were not going to their closest clinic because they couldn't get appointments i always hear that abortion rights advocates have been expecting this for years you know they've been seeing the stacking in the supreme court did they create a plan for this outcome now that it seems that that's going to happen um, I don't know. I mean, that would be a great question for Paul Dillon <laughs> yeah. or somebody with Planned Parenthood. I mean, uh, they have been talking about it for a long time. And I think one thing he and I talked about at that uh, rally the day after this draft was leaked was this news was really shocking to a lot of people who don't pay attention to this kind of news, uh, maybe intentionally, you know, it's kind of a downer to talk about. <laughs> he was saying that They've been talking about this issue, obviously, for months and months and months and wondering what could possibly come from this case. But people who don't do that may not have been aware in any way that this was a potential with this this term, the Supreme Court. But as far as like plans for opening new clinics or expanding care, I'm not sure exactly what that looks like. I do know that they are very strongly committed to maintaining access. And I mean, like that reader asked about, you know, that may, you know, what does that look like for cost sharing for the state of Washington and the state of Oregon and other places where people are going to be flocking to. I was reading an article yesterday. The governor is talking about putting the right to abortion in the in the state constitution, enshrining that to make sure that it's like even stronger. Do you know if any advocates are... I mean, I'm sure they're yeah. on board with that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the yeah. plans are. Yeah. Um, I do know that there was a bill last year that already strengthened some of the rights um, to access abortion in in Washington state um, and also made some changes to the language about like specifically preventing law enforcement from prosecuting people for having a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a case in Spokane that was investigated for a time as neglect of a child or something at first. It was a really crazy case. Like a woman had a miscarriage in a motel and I think the fire department was called because this was a later term and she was panicking and didn't want a female or didn't want a male EMT to come in and so they got a female EMT and then she decided to go to the hospital with her friend and the cop said okay we'll meet you there to talk to you and she panicked or something and didn't go there. Um, because that was in Spokane, right? That was in Spokane. Yeah. Yeah. That was a terrifying story. And ultimately no charges were brought against her. But even then, like think about the potential trauma, not, not, you know, everybody handles something like miscarriage differently and miscarriages are very, very common. So I don't want to, you know, overstate that, but it seemed like it was a shock to that person. And then further than being sort of almost accused, or at least the police seemed to sort of like walk back what the intent was or whatever. But yeah, yeah it's but like, I mean, their language tough. at the beginning of that was that they wanted to be let into the room to make sure that evidence was not being destroyed. Right. So they that's, were treating it like a crime accusatory. scene. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And that's, yeah. And that's happening in Washington state. So you can imagine what might be happening in places like Texas, where like Val mentioned earlier, miscarriages are being 
criminalized or at least potentially, you know. Well, and the question in a lot of these states that I think is really terrifying for uh, people in general who, I mean, like you said, miscarriage is far more common than I think a lot of people understand. And often when women have a miscarriage, even in a pregnancy that they really want to keep, they need to go get what's called a DNC to safely evacuate that material from their body, essentially. Um, you can easily get sepsis, get infected, and die if you do not get that medical treatment. And in states where this is now going to be like completely illegal, I think there's going to be questions where, well, how far into potentially getting septic do you have to be before the doctor can say that your life is at risk for us to perform this at the hospital? Right. There are these horror stories of pre-Roe where women were forced to evacuate the fetus after it had died naturally or whatever, and then they just ended up dying of sepsis. That's a really, really terrible outcome. And it's important to, to note that you know, medically speaking, a miscarriage is called a spontaneous abortion. And like in medical terminology, as far as I know, I'm not a doctor. But yeah, no, I mean, it (laughs) is. And it's actually really upsetting to a lot of women who, like I said, you know, they want to start a family. This horrible thing happens. And I know people who like personally have seen this on a bill, and it's very upsetting to them that that's the term for it. But it is the medical term. And, and doctors have pointed out the standard of care is the same. It's if you have a miscarriage and you need medicine to evacuate the fetus so you don't get sepsis, depending on the point in time in the pregnancy, the doctor will prescribe the same medicine to the pharmacy that is for a medical abortion. And if it's later on, you might have to have a DNC. Yes. I mean, the, the language is like misconstrued so often here where it's, you know, this is a medical situation. Well, yeah, I mean, it, you've, I've heard a lot more often in the abortion access side of things calling abortion health care. I think mm-hmm. that's really there language. This that's, is healthcare. That's what I was thinking That's of. been <laughs> coming up a lot in the last couple of years for sure. I want to kind of talk about Supreme Court stuff again in a second, but before we move away from this specific decision. What's the next step in your reporting going to be? Where where are you going to take this next? Are you going to do anything before the decision comes down? Or are you going to wait and, and sort of report after the fact? Or what, how are you thinking about your coverage of the story? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm holding off until we know what that decision looks like. And then there may be room to do some more reporting on you know, the the real impacts. I mean, you know this already, but the Inlander, we tend to not do the, you know, just short little update stories. We tend to wait for the bigger piece. So sadly, I can imagine a story seven months from now or so where there's been enough time once Roe's been overturned for some really unfortunate situations to happen to people. That would be the kind of things that I would be really interested in in hearing about, you know, this as far as stories of accessing and having to drive hundreds of miles or being told that their doctor who was formerly supportive of something is no longer supportive of that. Those kinds of things I do expect may start happening. 20% 20% of our questions have been questions we could have just called up somebody at Planned Parenthood <laughs> and asked, but because of like the, just the really interesting dynamics of Eastern Washington and North Idaho, the fact that there already aren't clinics in North Idaho and in Western Montana, and the fact that Washington to your, like you mentioned earlier, like codified abortion as being legal in the state before Roe even happened. So like we proactively did that as a state 50 years ago. And the fact that 
as a result, f- somewhere between 40 and maybe over 50% of the abortions done in Washington clinics are people from Idaho or at least well, from those out of two, state. Those two clinics on the border, I should be specific. The yeah. ones, sorry, yes, the ones on the border. It strikes me that they have a unique lens on what the future of abortion access might look like. And so have they been getting calls from people saying, like, how have you guys handled this influx from out of state? Yeah, I mean, I think they're they're definitely preparing for an influx at their clinics all over the state. How that looks ultimately will probably shake out a little bit later. But like we've said, you know, the ones that are in our region in the Inland Northwest have already seen this for many years. So it's not necessarily likely that there will be a super huge influx. But I do think that there's some concern that maybe the Tri-Cities would get a bigger push of patients just because the freeway from Boise area up goes Goes a little bit more directly there. And there may be people, I mean, I asked about flights, you know, like I'm thinking a flight from Boise to Spokane is one of the fastest, cheapest options for someone in that situation. I don't know that that's what they're assuming will happen, though. I think Seattle area is expecting more patients for some reason, just because they're a major airport hub as well. And there will be a lot of states that will no longer have access. Obviously, the story focused on the local impact of a national court of of a national court ruling So maybe this is just outside scope, but you also chatted with a lot of activists and I'm curious if you heard what got us to now was close to five decades of work by conservatives, like at all levels to build up a judiciary and build up basically an entire pipeline to achieve the conditions for a 6-3 conservative majority. Have you talked with anybody or or read anything in your background uh, reporting and research that like progressive activists are gonna are planning for that intensive long-term strategy to take control back? Hmm. I don't I don't know if that's the case. I mean, I, I'm sure there are people talking about that. I think we've heard since President Biden took office as well, the discussion about whether the court should have more seats than it does and be expanded. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that they're sort of thinking of all possibilities. That's a really long-term strategy, though. And I think right now people are sort of in the immediate reaction phase. I mean, I don't know if you're getting at this with that question, but it was interesting to me in reporting this to learn that the majority of the justices who agreed to the Roe decision were appointed by conservative presidents. Right. Yeah, um, like five out of the seven, I believe. Mm-hmm. It's also just an indicator of how politics has shifted in this country. I mean, that was really interesting talking to Mary Pat Truthart. I think I'm so sorry if your name is wrong, but um, that's right. um, So uh, in talking to Mary Pat about this, she had just started law school a couple years after Roe, uh, that decision came down. And she told me like, it was really weird because we didn't hardly talk about this case at all. When I was a law student, just just happened. It didn't seem like it was particularly controversial at the time. And so there wasn't that much of a focus uh, until later years. And I think in listening to a lot of different coverage about this issue, I think the New York Times did an episode of The Daily on the history there. And it seems like the conservative side of this and pushing back against Roe really started in earnest in the 80s at some point. Yeah, I mean, even yeah, in 1970, like 70% of Southern Baptist pastors, which we think of as like, that's the holy grail of sort of Protestant conservatism in America, were supported abortion as recently as 1970. So yeah, it's, it's just wild how that shifted so quickly and, and became such a, a galvanizing issue for the right. Do you know what, what can regular people do? Um, I mean, I, I know that there are some funds, like you mentioned, um, even the state of Oregon set aside a pretty good chunk of change, like millions of dollars to potentially help pay for patients who would have to travel to Oregon to get an abortion. 
uh, Washington may do the same. And there is a fund in, I can't remember the name of it, but for the Pacific Northwest, essentially, that offers um, some coverage for that. But I'll tell you, having talked to them for previous stories, I mean, it was already very difficult to get any assistance from them years ago. Just they really had to prioritize cases that were the most dire in need. Like you really, really, really cannot afford the gas to get there. Okay. And how far along are you? Okay. What's the Um, process for that? They have some sort of triage process essentially. And so even at that time they were having to tell people like, sorry, we can't help you. (laughs) Hopefully you can get there. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, are these like these are state funded. Uh, no, this was a private organization. Oh, private nonprofits. Okay, um, that I, makes sense. I think it's the Northwest Abortion Access Fund. I could be wrong with that name, but okay. Yeah, but I mean, as far as the legal challenges, I don't know necessarily what what comes next. This is the top court in the country, so um, I guess until another case makes it through and then would be overturning this, I don't know what else there is there. I mean, there are some definite activist posts that I've seen on social media of people, you know, encouraging people to buy Plan B and even buy the medication that is used in medication abortions and have that on hand. I don't know that that's being recommended by like doctors and people who are in healthcare because it does not sound like a good idea if you're not being supervised. But I mean, these are the kind of things that people are doing. I've also seen people sort of setting up mutual aids, kind of like underground railroad situations where it's like, if you need a friend, like I live close to the border. If you have a friend, I will go and pick them up who can't get a, a ride into town or whatever. And it strikes me that, so when you were mentioning like the sort of the nonprofit response that already exists to sort of help folks get access. There's a bit of a bureaucracy, but then also it's like, you know, if you're talking about getting, buying somebody a plane ticket from Texas to Seattle, that's like might might be a thousand bucks round trip. That gets really expensive really fast. I almost wonder if there's going to be sort of peer-to-peer mutual aid networks that get set up that make it it's a lot scrappier. It's definitely not like a federally, you know, it's not like a, a 501c3 or a c4 or something. It's much more ad hoc and much more grassroots than that. Yeah. Yeah. I think there, there will, we'll see some of that for sure. More than there has been. We'll definitely see some of that if the sort of next steps of the anti-abortion movement end up playing out, which we have seen so far. They've had success in the court in this case. I mean, in talking to to Paul Dillon from Planned Parenthood at this rally on May 3rd, the day after this draft was leaked, he said, yeah, we were actually going to meet this morning about another story that had leaked on Monday morning about um, sort of the next steps of that movement's plans, including trying to regain control of Congress with conservative majority and pass a federal fetal heartbeat ban. And should that happen, I do think there's some really major legal questions. Um, I mean, I asked our state AG's office, you know, what is what happens if that happens? You know, is this like we have weed that's legal in the state that is federally illegal, mm-hmm. but that's a very different right. issue. And, you know, their their sort of thing is not to comment on hypotheticals. So unfortunately, we don't really have a good answer there. But I have seen Bob Ferguson, our, our attorney general, comment really strongly in support of abortion access. So I assume that there would be some lawsuits should we get to that point. Makes me want to get somebody from the AG's office a little high so that they would <laughs> speculate on that sort of thing with our legal weed. They'd be like, yeah, I know you don't like commenting on hypotheticals, but like... We live in a world of hypotheticals and like it's very convenient, a very convenient lawyerly thing. Not that these two things are in any way com- comparable, but yeah, we there is a precedent for openly and even brazenly defying federal law. And that's the 
proliferation, you know, the, the descheduling of marijuana in plenty of states and even some kind of conservative ones. So again, not a legal scholar, but it might be interesting that that's one potential path to think about, I guess, if, if there is a federal, uh, heartbeat ban. So from one of the heaviest healthcare stories I could possibly think of to one of the more absurd, still pretty serious, but can we chat a little bit? And this happened. I mean, I was falling asleep as this news was coming out last night. Our public health administrator, Amelia Clark, has let the county know that she, when her contract is up on September 12th, she will not be returning. She's taking a job out of state. Is that, and you just reported about that? Yeah, um, that was on Wednesday, I think. So um, she let the county know on Tuesday that she'll be taking this other job. And then on Wednesday, alerted staff through an email. And I was actually out reporting at another event and got some copies of that email and was like, oh, crap, got to run back and write about that. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it sounds like she'll be leaving the position and it opened the question, you know, obviously right away to what happens to the state board of health investigation. One of the only things that we talked about the last time I was on here was, you know, what are the possible ramifications if they find that she did fire Dr. Lutz legally. Well, that would be removing her from her position is one of the main things. And it's really interesting, the timing on this, because that hearing was supposed to happen in January. It got postponed to May. From May, it got postponed to September 19th. Her contract ends with the health district on September 16th, and she will be out of the position by the time that was set to start. So why did why did the hearings get postponed? Was it did one side ask for it or was it some other bureaucratic situation? I mean, I don't know what the this delay was. I mean, obviously my question is if it was knowing that this might be coming and wanting to time it with the end of the contract. With the first delay, I believe it was just more that it seemed like they still needed to do some more discovery and both sides were very happy to take a little bit more time, especially they they came back like right after the the holiday sort of break that everybody was on and had this meeting in January and said, "Yeah, we're definitely not ready to have this yet, so let's push it to May." But yeah, this this push from May to September, I'm not sure yet. Huh. What have you been hearing from the various competing sides on this? How are people reacting to it? Was it, su- was it a surprise to the commissioners since, I mean, they threw their weight and their support behind her so strongly? Have you heard anything from Lutz's camp? What's kind of, what's the, what's the gossip? At this point? <laughs> what's the hot gas? Um, I haven't actually talked to, to many people from either of those camps yet. So um, I'm not sure what their reactions are. I mean, I saw, I think the spokesman was able to talk to Kevin Freeman and And he just sort of said, yeah, we just learned about this yesterday. And uh, so we're going to figure out what our plan is for replacement soon. So that kind of tells me that they weren't necessarily expecting this. And they're taking Kevin Freeman's on the the county board of health. And he's what the mayor of like uh, Millwood. Is that right? Or am I? Yes. He's the small city mayor rep on the board. The small city mayor rep on the newly reconstituted health board. Yeah. Do you know how long that took them to find Amelia? How long is this process for finding a health administrator? I mean, it's got to be national. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was a national search and I think it was easily like a year, if not more. This could potentially be a long process unless there's somebody already in mind, like happened with our health officer (laughs) being replaced very quickly. I mean, maybe that's something that they've already got lined up, but I do think with this one, they'll probably do another search. Is it the County Board of Health that does this search or? Yes, the um, Spokane Regional Health District 
Board of Health. Is that the board that has that naturopath on it? There are not yet. <laughs> okay. Yeah, not the same one you're thinking of. Oh, gotcha. It's a new uh, If you're thinking of the original board when Lutz was fired, um, okay. there is, yeah, there is now, um, now her name is slipping my mind, but one of the new appointees is a naturopathic doctor. Got it. Or I just remember there being some controversy with that board. The state legislature tried to sort of codify a more healthcare focused board and then it kind of led to the Spokane Health District reconstituting like basically shrinking its board and making it kind of smaller is what yeah. kind of what it seems like. Well and the, and the yeah. controversy I think you're thinking of is that the one position that they added that was specifically supposed to be for a healthcare professional it was it. someone who's a naturopath was appointed to that. But I mean I think as Commissioner Al French, a uh, county commissioner pointed out to me at the time when we talked about this, which I think is really fair, if you lead, if you read the list that was included in that new bill of what that healthcare professional could be, it included like anybody who works at any kind of hospital. Right. So, I mean, he pointed out like that could literally be someone in accounting from Providence. Okay. Like we, <laughs> we did go with someone who actually works with patients. That's fair. And I think for him, he's got a very personal experience with using that kind of healthcare. And so, um, that was an interesting passion that a lot of people were saying, this is just him saying that it has to be this way. And he's, you know, he does have a personal tie to not receiving sort of the answers that he needed from traditional medicine, I think. That's a very polarizing topic is naturopathy versus traditional Western medicine. I well, find. it's really fascinating <laughs> in a public health context, too, yeah. because I think we, we generally, any, you know, you can even get it different from when, like, I was growing up, like, you know, chiropractic services and um, acupuncture and stuff is often co covered under health plans. It feels like what made this, like, such a specific point of friction, even past, like, the controversy of Lutz's firing and everything that happened subsequently was the fact that it's it's public health that made the sort of naturopath thing a little bit more controversial because it's like there's like the liver let live sort of like you should be free to seek out whatever practitioners you feel is best for your your individual health but then when it comes to public health is is naturopathy really right for a position like that which is like sort of intended to be more like science focused or something right. I'm, not, I'm not advocating well, for either of those that's no. just kind of <laughs> the way it seemed you know well and i think the response that Al French gave that, again, I would say I think is pretty fair. If the intent of this legislation was to ensure that somebody with a public health master's degree was in at least one position on the board, there should have been a bullet point that said at least one person with a master's in public health, period, and nothing else as another option. Yeah, yeah, totally. Fair point. I guess that's kind of another just we don't, the, the story hasn't really developed past the holy shit Amelia Clark's leaving now like after all this after all this two years yeah I will say I, I've got calls out to you know find out what's happening with that investigation but I don't know yet so you guys don't get the scoop <laughs> ah dang it uh do we know where she's going or is she being yeah I don't know yet um, about that? I will probably be calling on Monday to ask about that well, Sam, thanks so much for coming back on. These are really, really complex topics. You always report the hell out of them. And it's always great getting your insights on this stuff. We really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. It's, uh, it's always good to talk a little bit more in depth because there's always a few things that don't make it in the story. Thanks again, as always, to Sam. Second time, long time. She keeps reporting like this. She's going to be far and away our most often returned to guest. This episode was produced by Val Osier. It was hosted by Val and I. 
it was recorded and engineered, well, partially recorded and, enge- and entirely engineered at Spokast Studio. I was remote because everyone around me keeps getting COVID. I have not had it yet, but I've had enough exposures that I need to isolate, seems like, weekly. And Brandon and the crew at Spokast does an amazing job of ensuring that all of these various audio feeds come together in a seamless way. The episode was edited masterfully by Connor Bacon. That's it for us this week. Have a great weekend. If you're an art fan, if you're a trained fan, Bazaar is this weekend. I will probably be there helping out. Not sure what I'm going to be doing yet, but you'll see me around. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.